Let's do it. Let's bring DA into the conversation here. Welcome to Who Comma is Jason on the Athletic Podcast Network. Turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs like the most in his braggadocia. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. David, David Aldridge. Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Him. Yes. <laughs> And then they have their lungs out in front of everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. It was popping in there. And Marcus Thompson. I just can't get with this idea of taking one hour of content and finding the morsel that might pop and blowing out of it. Hoops and Jason. Welcome to Hoops 5, 4, we have ignition. And it is another edition of Hoops Adjacent on the Athletic NBA Show. I am David Aldridge. We took a couple of weeks off because, frankly, there was nothing going on in the league. It's, it was the dead time of the league. But we're back now with Marcus Thompson on the West Coast, the best coast. Marcus, what is up, sir? Oh, man, my two weeks off wasn't really two weeks off. Uh, my, <laughs> hey, did you yo, my mother got married. At 63 what? years old. I don't know why she You did didn't that. tell me. I didn't. Nobody knew this. Yeah, what? What? Yeah. You're just dropping. You're just breaking news on my, the My, my mother sure got married, yo. I'm still kind of. What? Congratulations, man. I don't know. I'm not congratulating you. <laughs> <laughs> nah, look, 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 as she happy, I'm good. That's all that matters. If she right, happy, right, I'm right. good. But I'm just like, what are you doing? What are you doing getting married at 63? But, yo, yeah. Can I tell that's you my two weeks. My dad, my, my mom passed in 86. And my my dad had been married to my we they had been married for thirty years, and I was like pops, you know, I, we, do what you need to do. We understand. Everybody knows what you need. You know. And dude got remarried like two years later, and I'm like, what are yeah, you doing? Well, why, why would you do this? I don't understand. <laughs> what are you doing? My mom's been a widow for twenty years, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, wow. what? Right. <laughs> why, why would you do this? <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, man, man, congratulations to the family. That's great news. I mean, you know. Is it the mo- as you said the important thing is she's yeah happy, that's all right? that matters she's happy yeah exactly exactly well well then we are blessed so I might be needing some counseling from our guest today by the way I was going to say, say. <laughs> to help you to help you with some PTSD <laughs> that we're all going through man we are so happy this week to have Bob Delaney on the show Bob is somebody that I have known for a long time and you know has had multiple careers. And is still going strong. And that's what I like about Bob is that he's always, always um, working and reaching out to people, to various constituencies. Bob was an NBA referee for more than 20 years, one of the best to ever do it, Uh, did multiple finals series over the years, um, and really was at the top of his profession. And and was at the top. I mean, you could take 20 minutes just going through the bio. But for those of you who don't know, and Bob, it's crazy because now it's a generation of people since you wrote your book about your previous career that maybe people don't know that Bob, before he became an NBA referee, was an undercover FBI agent. <laughs> and when you and he sent me a note yesterday, Marcus, talking, to, you know, he said, look, when this new joint comes out, the new Sopranos movie comes out, he goes, this was. This is my people. Right, These right, are my right. people back in the day. And it's like The Sopranos is like my favorite TV show of all time. Like it's not even close. That's my favorite show ever. And so when you talk about the New Jersey mob, Bob Delaney was undercover after being a New Jersey state trooper, went undercover for three years, infiltrated the mob in northern New Jersey, and led to in his his testimony and his Working undercover for three years led to the 
convictions of more than 30 mafia members. These are serious people. Okay, This is not, it wasn't a joke. And that led to Bob kind of his, his new career or his second life, his third life, dealing with people who have dealt with post-traumatic stress because he suffered it after going through three years being undercover with some very dangerous people. So Bob, for the last 30 years, has been working with post-traumatic stress, whether it is military survivors. He works with the TAPS program, which is, is something that I, I know about and, and think does incredible work with families who have, of, of military members who have died and the survivors. Um, he works with uh, police uh, families. He works with 9-11 survivors. Um, just a remarkable guy. So, Bob, I want to just bring you in now, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate both you all. And um, interesting start to the show, to say the least, I would imagine, right? (laughs) I mean, that was what I refer to that as always letting the air out of your balloon, right? Uh, When we go through something, more often than not, we push it down and we don't talk about it. Yeah. It was great to hear you guys talk about it. Unfortunately, that's what we do in our society. Uh, We push things down instead of being honest about our conversations. And that was a beautiful thing to 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 start off the show. Yeah. Oh, thank you, well, man. Well, you know, we try to be honest with each other. So, 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 <laughs> David is my unpaid therapist. So I just unload. <laughs> I just unload on him, you know. And now I got That's two. Okay, I pay. I pay a therapist. <laughs> I got. Do. I got two sages. What? I am living in life today. I'm about to get some stuff off my chest, Bob. It's going down. <laughs> but Marcus, I'm a strong believer in peer-to-peer conversation. I, I used to call it peer-to-peer therapy, but I take away every medical sounding term yeah. when I'm talking about this yeah. because I think we scare yeah. people away. In my opinion, we've over-medicalized this conversation, and it scares people away. And I and I always say, please don't interpret that I'm saying we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. Uh, we have tremendous resources. It's the building of that bridge from both sides, from the resources to those who need some help. Uh, is what has to get stronger. And, you know, this stuff's been around forever. I mean, Sophocles wrote two plays about the warrior not knowing how to act after coming home from battle. Right. <clears throat> after Civil War, we called it soldier's heart. After World War One, we called it shell shock. After World War Two, we called it battle fatigue. Korean and Vietnam Wars, we referred to it as flashbacks. And, and now we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. But this is just human emotions. It's, it, it, I use the term mind health versus mental health because I think when we say mental health, we conjure up mental illness mm-hmm. and then people shy away from the conversation. When we talk about mind health, it's no different than physical health, right? I mean, uh, get your body in shape, those kinds of, um, uh, kinds of healths that we need, emotional health, mind health. I think that there's ways and words matter in our society and how, how we frame conversations. So, um, so I'll give you guys props. Uh, it, it, was, it was a peer-to-peer conversation taking place. You both went through something with your parents and you shared it with each other. And, and, and that gives permission to each other to, to share your story. And it also validates your feelings. Yeah. Bob, I must wonder, I do wonder, and I, and I imagine it's so, but I would like you to, to, you know, to tell us, it seems to me that men have a harder time with this than women do. Is that, is that accurate in your experience? You know, what's interesting is that um, if you look at studies, um, they'll, they'll say that 1.2 or 1.5% uh, higher incident level of uh, post-traumatic stress with 
women than men. I argue it's skewed data because where do you get information from to put into a report? People who are willing to speak to you. Right. Um, so right. I, I agree with you, David. I, I think that um, we've been socialized, right? I was told I shouldn't cry because I was a man. Right. Um, you know, if I... I grew up Irish Catholic, which means I wake up guilty in the morning. I think I do something wrong every day. And, and so um, my mom was conceived in Ireland and born here. If I fell off a bike when I was a kid, my arms all bloodied up. I come in the house. My mother would be like, Robert, offer up your pain for the poor souls in purgatory. And for those of you that are Catholic, it was purgatory. And um, about... 15 years ago, the Catholic Church said there is no more purgatory. So I don't know who the hell I was giving up all that pain for all those years. But if my sister <laughs> fell off of the swing and skinned her knee, they had a medevac helicopter coming in, taking her to the first plastic surgeon they could find, right? It was a socialization yeah. about what took place and how we're, and we're supposed to be tough guys and, and, and all these things. David, it took me a long time to figure this thing out, but to... to Courage is not absent of fear. Right. Courage takes place despite the fear right. you have. And um, it took me a lot of years to try to really comprehend that. I, right. I think what's uh, important about what you're saying and almost the harsh reality of it is it literally takes wisdom to, to understand this, right? Like it's almost impossible to understand it while you're young and vibrant and your body is telling you, yo, you can do anything, but it, it, it does take a level of wisdom and experience. So I, you know, I just like to say, Hey man, give it time. Just keep living, keep living. You understand, <laughs> you understand what real courage is, right? Just keep living. And that's why I think, that's why I think you're valuable. Uh, all these experiences, all these different quarters of life like now we can learn from what you went through and and those various experiences but you there's no match for that there's no replacement for wisdom for experience there is no alternative right like there's no there's no quick pill there's no get rich quick no get rich quick scheme for wisdom and that's how you learn that like there's so many layers and levels to this stuff that's why that's why i'm always willing to unload in front of david right just because he's got something that i'll it's gonna take me a little bit of time to get <laughs> i'm gonna need some more time to, to acquire it <laughs> But Marcus, your your point uh, is right on because what I refer to as PTSD is post-traumatic stress development. Mm. We develop as a result of it, right? We all too often speak of the negatives, but there is development and wisdom that comes through traumatic experience, through all of our experiences. And that is as much to celebrate and, and, and underline and share with folks as is understanding those that need help as a result. There are so many directions I can go in. And I want to start with this, though. You have these dual things that are just just catastrophic in nature. You have the 20th anniversary of 9-11, which we just had last week. And I don't even like to call it an anniversary. It's not an anniversary. It's just been 20 years since it happened. Um, along with COVID. And they're both happening at the same time. And I just, I know personally... I feel overwhelmed and I'm in an incredibly privileged place to be and I feel overwhelmed and I just wonder what people are, you know, without obviously going into detail, what people are saying to you that, that you're counseling and dealing with as these two kind of, these two concurrent awful things are crashing down on people at the same time. I just finished a book, uh, the manuscript for a new book that I wrote. It's called Heroes Are Human, Real Stories of Resilience and Hope from the 
COVID front lines. And it's um, the work that I've been doing uh, for 25 years with the military in the area of post-traumatic stress. I've been doing it for 40 years with law enforcement. Um, I saw parallels starting to develop with what's taking place with COVID because our healthcare workers are at war with an invisible enemy. And so the the traumas are going to be the same. I'll give you one example. I spoke to an ICU nurse not too long ago, and she told me that with all that she had experienced, she and her husband went out on a lake for a boat ride just to, to chill out, get away from things. And as they came in at the end of the day and they came to dock the boat, she got to the front of the boat, was going to tie it off and started crying uncontrollably because what had happened and her husband got upset and didn't know. And he came up to call her and then he ties the boat off. When she pulled, they pulled in, she saw a small boat with a tarp on it that was the same color of the body bags that she has seen patients put in over and over. And that triggered her. And she said, I saw every one of my patients and I I just couldn't control myself any longer. These are real stories. These are the kinds of stories I heard from soldiers who said to me, sir, I can't go over a bridge when I come home because I'm looking for IEDs. I hate garbage day in my town because along the side of the road, IEDs may be in there. So I'm always cautious. Sir, I was I was tasked with taking care of the prisoners, and I'm talking to my family like they're prisoners. Yeah. Um, so these are real stories that are part of the humanity of those who serve us. And we have a responsibility to them. My belief is we have a tremendous responsibility to, to caring for them. And so the healthcare workers now are also a, a, a group of folks that I, I'm involved with. You know, I... What you're saying on is 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 pretty uh, personal for me. My sister is in a a, a veteran's Iraq War, and I mean the story she tells me. I mean, I can't. You know, we talk about toughness and courage. I'm, I feel like a little piece of cloth next to her, right? And the things <laughs> that she's been through, uh, and she now she spends her time like. You know, fighting for veteran services. She she's in Arkansas, right? She had a nonprofit doing that. And what was alarming to me was just how difficult it is for veterans to get necessary services. It's a very it's a very frustrating and angering thing for me how we treat our veterans. But I don't want to get off on that. I'm, my my question is like what you're dealing with is it feels like you need a certain level of expertise for that. It feels like a lot for me. It feels like a a weighty thing. But what what do people what can we do when we don't have the expertise to maybe to help or counsel? How can we how can we be supportive? How can we do something outside of, you know, being the one they go to and counsel and that? Because sometimes I do feel helpless with my sister who has been through things that I've never imagined. I could never imagine. And sometimes I feel helpless just with her. And I'm like, yo, what do I do? I don't have the pedigree to talk to you, uh, you know. I don't want to just give her some money. Like she don't need my money. Like what does that do? Mm -hmm. Right. So sometimes I wonder what can, what can just regular people do to be helpful to uh, this community that should be, should have no shortage of our help. Yeah. Just listening and being supportive and, 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 and allowing them to use you as a sounding board without being overly uh, questions. You know, like um, one of the things that when I was in law enforcement, uh, I'd be in a diner in uniform and somebody would come up and say, ask, do you ever shoot anybody? 
I mean, it was the most ridiculous thing in the world to say to you, right? And so what I offer in this conversation is when we're listening to those who serve, it's not about asking questions about what they did or what they have been through. It's about allowing them to just have a way to release some of this information. I use this, uh, and Marcus, I, I, I look forward to meeting your sister. I, I've been to Iraq on numerous occasions. I've been to Afghanistan numerous occasions um, all over the world with um, our troops in, in Europe, Korea, and throughout the United States. Um, I share this with them. Uh, when I talk about peer-to-peer conversation or about getting it out, if I had a big balloon, in front of the room. And if your audience just would imagine that I've got this huge balloon that I'm holding, how do I get the air out? I can take a pin and pop it, but I don't have a balloon anymore. I can let it go. It flies all over the room. It goes out the door. We don't know what happened to the balloon. But if we're patient and willing to listen to sounds, we do not want to hear. No sounds may hurt our ears. We turn it upside down. We let a little air out at a time with that balloon. It makes that screeching noise. But eventually we get all the air out of the balloon. We're going to have a full balloon we can use again one day. That's us with trauma. That's us with the traumatic experiences. We need to release and allow them to come out. But more often than not, what do we do? We push them down one on top of another and try to act as if they do not bother us. And if you take that analogy to its fruition, at some point, the balloon's going to burst. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful design objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless, modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and Cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. I went to I went to Walter Reed with Kermit Washington, actually, one time, because he was with the Players Association then. And that's here in D.C. And, Bob, I felt so guilty. I just felt so guilty going there. Mm-hmm. And the, the you know, the families were all so incredibly appreciative that anybody, when people would come and listen to their, right. to their sons and daughters talk. And I just felt so awful I, because mm-hmm. I just felt I am so inadequate compared to this 23-year-old kid. And I remember that like it was yesterday and I – he went, he re, he did a tour. He went back. He did another tour. He went back again. And I said, I said, sir, cause I didn't know how else to address him. I said, sir, I, why did you keep going back? You did your time. You did your tour. You could have left and gone back and retired, or you could have been stateside the rest of your life. Why did you keep going back? And he said, because if I didn't stay, they would die. <laughs> and I just, what do you do with that? I don't know. I didn't know to the, I don't know to this day what to do with that information. How do I, to Marcus's point, I just don't know what to say to someone like that. Who is that selfless? Like, I don't, what do My you do? My words ain't enough, How, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Ain't enough, yeah. yeah. This is the most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. 
uh, being around those who serve us, um, the men and women, and, and, and their families. And so this weekend, I'll be with the Green Beret uh, team uh, out of Fort Bragg, and we have a family retreat. One of the things that we've been stressing in conversations with the Pentagon is that while it's great to provide this information about post-traumatic stress and about uh, self-care and resiliency um, to the troops, we also have to do with their families, right? Because their families are impacted. So we not only, I, I, I say we get a heck of a deal in our country. We pay one service military service member's salary, and we get an entire family working for us and sacrificing for us. So I always make sure that I go spend time with the kids as well. And, and, and you know, I don't speak to the kids about what I speak to the adults, but I can use that NBA uh, kind of entree into mm-hmm, it. And, mm-hmm. I, I always say to them, what does the NBA stand for? They tell me National Basketball Association. I tell them, I want you to change your thinking. It means never be average. Mm-hmm. Because uh, what I learned be, being in the league, if you be average, you, you're you not staying. Yeah. And so you got to be the best you can be and never admire a player for their athleticism, admire them for their work ethic because they work so hard to be the best they can be. And we go through all that. Then at some point I say to them, What's it like when mom or dad goes on deployment and just by their body language, they like pull back or they, uh, I said, it's okay to say you don't like that. It's okay to say that because they're taught also that that's part of what their dad or mom's job is that they're supposed to like, it's okay to be honest about your feelings is all I'm trying to, to get. And then I thank them and tell them on behalf of all the players in the NBA and the coaches and the referees, your parents are the heroes, <laughs> ball players and, and coaches oh, right. and referees. That's right. not special, man. <laughs> right. You right. all are the special folks in our society. You, you, I, I, wonder, I was wondering about this. You've done so much. You've done so many things that uh, that, that have far more gravity than basketball, right? Like it's far more, uh, I guess, deeper implications. How how do you even have the the energy? Like, what is it about that made you a good referee? Like, it seems like almost doing the things that you were doing, like taking down mobs and, and, and military background, makes all that stuff so serious. How did basketball maintain its importance enough for you to be great at it? You know, to be a referee. Well, it was very kind of you to say that that I was good at refereeing. I think there's few people in the league that would uh, have a conversation in a different way about that. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Larry Brown and I actually saw each other about a month ago and hugged each other. Yeah, I mean, God. that's how times have changed. That's how times hey, have wisdom, changed. Wisdom, wisdom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, Marcus, basketball was my therapy. Um, mm. I never thought of getting into the NBA. After I surfaced from doing the undercover work and then testifying in cases and continuing to do that kind of work, in organized crime, traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, what term, whatever term we want to give to it. Getting back on a basketball floor was part of what I did as a kid, right? So I played ball at the high school and college level. So the, I couldn't play the game anymore at a level that I wanted to. So I started refereeing to stay with the game. That gave me an inner peace mm. and it was my therapy. And so it led one thing to another where Daryl Garrettson saw me refereeing a summer pro league down at the Jersey Shore and offered me a position in the Continental Basketball Association and then led to my career in the league. Um, But basketball has always been there for me. And I think if you speak to so many players and coaches and folks around the game, the game is therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, The game gives us so much 
more than just about a sport. It's about life. And, 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 and the folks that you meet that you're able to um, exchange conversations like we are, it's so helpful. I mean, sitting along a chain link fence after a game, I've learned more about life. That's the best college <laughs> course, right? I ever did in a classroom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have to ask you, you know, you do have this incredible, um, you know, body of work as, as an NBA referee. I don't know if you saw Forget Paris. Did Billy Crystal get it right if you saw Forget Paris? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was pretty cool uh, uh, show that uh, Billy did. You know, he traveled around. I think he went with Jake a couple times yeah. and he would go to games with different referees uh, to get an understanding. I think he did a really good job. I, I never knew of um, referee and a, a sportscaster or a sports writer that hung around each, no, each other as no, much as that, that was in the show. <laughs> that, but, uh, never, ever, ever. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, other than that, I thought they got it right. Yeah. And uh, parallel to that, I know you talked about The Sopranos. Uh, somebody asked me the other day about how was The Sopranos realistic? And I said, yes, except the fact I never knew a wise guy that was going to a psychologist for self-help. You know, <laughs> you know? I, yeah, I wondered about that. Like, no, that's not that happening. That would never happen, right? Like, <laughs> that's just- <laughs> not happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's the whole conceit of the show, I know, but um, but – it was funny. I, like I said, I am the biggest Sopranos fan there is. And I was amazed that, that James Galdinofini, who played Tony Soprano, he's from Jersey. He's a Jersey guy. He went to Rutgers the whole nine, but he did not have the accent at all. They had to teach him how to speak like Tony <laughs> Soprano, which, which surprised me. I didn't know there was a dialect that was involved with the New Jersey, Northern New Jersey crime families. I didn't know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know where Gandolfini grew up, uh, but um, my cousin Arthur and he were roommates uh, at Rutgers in their right? freshman oh, wow. year. Okay. Yeah, and um, Arthur said he was just a, a regular guy, you know. Yeah. And I've never met Gandolfini. I've seen him at Nick Games. Yeah, um, I, I spent some time with Steve Shapiro. Yes, Shapiro. yes, sure. Um, um, big he, Knicks fan. He's, uh, he, he's a big Knicks fan, and. Um, I'm going blank on his real name, but uh, Uncle Junior. Oh, uh, Dominic. Dominic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dominic would be at the uh, Nets games a lot. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so you got to meet those guys. Um, but that show I thought was extremely realistic. David Chase has done a tremendous job. Uh, he's obviously gone in with the Freedom of Information Act and gotten a lot of information from law enforcement reports. He's got to have somebody on the wise guy side that's giving him information yeah. and telling him stories as well. But I think what he has done, and I think what all of us try to do is look at that and say, who is he speaking about? Is it Richie de Bupriardo? Is it, is it um, uh, Sam Del Cavacante? You count all these different guys. And I think what he's done is he's taken all of these personalities, put it into a blender, and created different uh, personalities within yeah. the, the show. And that's what will come out in this new movie called The Many Saints of, um, of Newark. Uh, that is going to, I think it's Gandolfini's son. Yes, his son's playing play, young Tony Soprano. Yeah. 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 And, but that, that whole, I've met every one of those personalities in my undercover work that uh, is on that show. Yeah. Uh, every one of those guys is, is real to what Down Neck Nork, um, Jersey City, Hoboken, over in New York City, down in Philly, yeah. that whole corridor up and down that I, that I, uh, 
worked on uh, and worked with. The other movie, The Irishman, that mm-hmm. came out, I know mm-hmm. it wasn't, um, uh, but every one of those guys I paid money to, except right. Frank Sheeran. I right. never paid him any money to Johnny McCullough, <laughs> Russ Buffalino, yeah. uh, Angelo Bruno. I, I paid money to in order for our trucks to run oh uh, back in the day. I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> I, I don't know about y'all, but I'm thinking after the Sopranos, I'm thinking there were a bunch of, you know, wise guys going to look for their Dr. Melfi. <laughs> right. like, there are a bunch of people like, hold on, man, where do, where do I get one? Where do I get where one do, of those? Where do I sign up for some do- Dr. Hey, Melfi yeah, uh, can you just picture a bunch treatment? Of, I can picture a bunch of wise guys going in asking for it. Like, yo, which right. one of y'all are Dr. Melfi? Like, let me. <laughs> you know, uh, Bob, we don't want to ask you, uh, you know, the impression that I've always heard about you, people always say this, like, you don't want to mess with Bob Delaney. Like he took down a mob, right? <laughs> Almost like, uh, you know, you speak and, I, and I've listened to you speak and you, you seem very humble and meek and gentle. But the reputation is you don't want to mess with him. And I'm wondering uh, in your career, have you ever gotten close to giving somebody the business, right? Like, have you ever have you ever had to turn up that side of you like, hold on now. <laughs> Let me let, be careful. I am Bob Delaney. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, back back uh, in 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 the uh, Jersey Shore Summer Pro League. Um, mm. You know, I, I, in in in, the, in, the, in probably in the um, Continental Basketball Association. Um, I remember telling one player, uh, "I'm going to stop being a referee and start going into my other job, and it's got a badge in the pocket. So you got this choice about how you want to act, <laughs> right?" Uh, so, but I, but I think it was the demeanor, right? Um, so, uh, I learned in that undercover job as well as in law enforcement that your demeanor, um, was what created, um, a calmness. If you, if you didn't take charge of things, and I think that's what the NBA, um, was interested. It wasn't that I was a great play caller or I knew how to... I could see problems starting to arise before they arose mm-hmm. and you could put, put it out. I was very fortunate as a young cop, my senior man, the guy that who, who I rode with and was my partner, but he was what we called a trooper coach drilled in my head that just because you got a uniform and a badge does not mean you are to be disrespectful or demeaning to folks that um, you will truly know you're a professional law enforcement officer when after you give out a ticket or you arrest someone, they say thank you. They're not thanking you for what they did. They're thanking you for how you did it. Mm-hmm. And I brought that approach to my refereeing as well, that I would maintain a, a, a stern um, kind of approach. This is a job and this is a serious business. and and yet do it in a respectful way. Uh, do, it, do it in a way that you develop relationships and also understand that this is the best weapon you have. Mm. Uh, talk to folks, talk to people. What are, everybody's overreacting, reaching for handcuffs and reaching for guns. This is like, this is not how society should be. Talk to somebody. Right. More often than not, you can calm the waters if, if you have that intent if that's where you want to go to start with right. versus thinking I got the power and I've got th- this right. and all of a sudden it comes across as arrogance. Yeah. Well, you're, you're talking about de-escalating as opposed to escalating. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. That just yes. seems like common sense to, well, lots right. of people. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
yes. especially these yeah. days. And it doesn't feel yeah. like that when you encounter police a lot, you know, and I know that right. that's not everybody, but that's a common experience for a lot of people. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I know I'm looking outside right now. Sun's out. Birds are chirping. It's time to start getting outside. Uh, I know that I like to get outside and play basketball with my kids. And honestly, I need to get into a fitness routine in order to keep up with these guys. And Peloton is there for me. Peloton's varying class links were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute core session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals. Peloton's classes were made to challenge you. There are a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, full body strength, or marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you're already excelling in. Peloton's program and instruction push you to be your best. Their expert coaches and nonstop vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run indoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Um, I, I do wonder, I, I was, I always felt like when I was at Turner and I was at ESPN and we would do a game, I always knew when I messed up. And, but that always made the times when I had a good game, a good broadcast, all the more rewarding because right. I felt like, okay, I did everything I could to make the broadcast as good as it could be tonight. And I just wonder what that sense of satisfaction is like for an official or a group of officials after you know, hey, we did everything we could. We we repped this game correctly. The mistakes were minor if there were any, and the game was allowed to reach its natural conclusion and it was, and everybody should be satisfied. Yeah. Um, early on in your career, I think in anybody's career, you're always trying to prove that you belong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're, you're, you're defensive in, in your approach. You're trying to prove that your calls are right. You're trying to prove that you're a good writer. You're trying to prove yeah. that you're a good announcer. You're, and, and so you're less willing to be introspective. Um, you know, that it's not as, as sharp as you could have been, but you're trying to, what I've said to, to, to referees and training referees is that you've got to remember there's doctorates in the game of basketball along the sideline. Uh, you're dealing with Pat Riley's, you're dealing with Doc Rivers, you're dealing with, uh, in, in my case, my, my, my rookie year, Bill Russell is coaching Sacramento. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm like in awe, right? I mean, uh, it's like you're sitting there and you say, these these men have doctorates in their game of basketball. Yeah. You are not going to convince them of something when you're wrong. Yeah. Just admit to your to the fact that you're wrong and move on. Now you can't do that 20 times a night or you're not going to have a job. Right. But that willingness to say I kicked it. More often than not, coach is going to hit you in the butt and say let's go and and they forget about it. It's when you bow your neck and now start coming and saying, I'm right, you're wrong. That causes all this kind of friction that comes. And um, yeah, I, there's nothing worse for an official um, to have a game-ending play that you make the incorrect call. Yeah. 
uh, we didn't have the luxury of replay uh, like it is today back in my era. Uh, I had it towards the tail end of my career. But there were nights that you just lay in that uh, bed and you're looking up at the ceiling and, you know, you're just you're beating yourself up and you can't wait until you referee again. I always say that, you know, it's okay that your game is being replayed or your play is being replayed over and over on ESPN or TNT. But if it's on CNN, you know, you got a problem. Because <laughs> the world now, not even basketball, right. but that's sports people are looking. They're going, what the heck was this? Would right. you, would you uh, have wanted the last two minute report in your day? I, I, you know, here, here's an interesting part. I was the vice president of referee operations when the uh, last two minute report came in. Mike Bantham was the executive vice president. Mm-hmm. And we had made a decision that I would do all of the last two minutes and that he would do the final uh, uh, oversight on it when it started so that we had a consistency of one person as well as what we wanted to prove to the referees was that we're looking at this and we're not looking just to find mistakes. I mean, but, and so, you know, anybody looking over somebody's shoulder, um, but there's always going to raise eyebrows. It's always going to cause for for that kind of, I came to find that the referees were a lot better in the last two minutes than what people were giving them credit for. But it's always that one play. And if that one play in the last two minutes can cause a team, right, they can't recover from the one play. If you make a bad call in the first 10 minutes, they got 38 more minutes to recover. (laughs) Right, right, right. You have no time to recover. And and that's the difficulty. That's why I was always a big believer, even way before you had coaches' challenges. I think that those things are important. Where we are in in, in the world technology-wise um, and the expectation for perfection, I don't know where this ever came in our society, but uh, replay, I think, has given that because fans are sitting with 82-inch screens in their homes. Sure. And, and the referee is looking at a monitor about this big right. <laughs> um, and trying to make decisions. So the replay center was a tremendous uh, plus for, for the league. Yeah. I, I it's the, the, the notion of perfection, as you mentioned, is just, I don't, it's, it, it's, it doesn't make sense to me because it's not a game played by robots. So why would we, yeah, I don't even think it's good perfection. <laughs> I don't, I don't I mean? want like, it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I expect the. You know, I, I, I don't mean this pejoratively. I think bad calls are part of the game. You know what I mean? Like that's like bad coaching, bad shots. You know, like mm-hmm. these are. These it's are like football with perfect trying. weather all the time. Like that ain't really football. Right. right. <laughs> right. I need. Right. Right. I need human right. elements. The human element of imperfection. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. You know, and I don't think we should lament the lack of it you know what i mean like you need or lament it when it's there you should not you can't find perfection so why would you why would you be upset if you couldn't get it you know what i mean like i just that doesn't make any sense to me um so bob i know you have a a million different things that that you could you know that you want to get out there that you're involved in is there anything in particular that you're going to be doing in in the next few months or weeks that that you want to talk about because i want to make sure you get an opportunity to talk about it well uh, i appreciate it the the new book coming out uh i I don't know where or who or when but uh i'm excited about that the fact that we're doing the work with the healthcare workers continuing to do the work that i do with the military um and and a um 
a show that just aired on NBA TV. I was the host and co-producer of uh, Antonino D'Ambrosio um, uh, was the is the filmmaker, the director, producer, and Antonino uh, has La Luta Productions, and um, it was an interview that we did with um, um, Jason Collins, and and what had happened was I. You all remember the movie Serpico back in the day? It was uh, Al Pacino's coming out movie. It was a classic. Well, Antonino did a docu-film on Frank Serpico. The 45 years that he lives, that he still lives to this day, but 45 years after the movie came out. And so I was brought in to talk about post-traumatic stress and about undercover work. And then as a result, Antonino and I developed a relationship and we went to a Nick game one night. And uh, I was in the vice president's role then. And as he's asking me questions, he sits back in his seat and he goes, I got a great idea for a show. It's going to call, be called The Play because I'm explaining what referees are doing on every play. So we take your undercover work, we take the basketball and then we start putting it to other people's lives. And so with this show called The Play, the first episode was called The Fake. And how in the game of basketball, the fake is a competitive advantage. The fake being a fake is a disadvantage in the game of life. I was a fake for three years of my life. I told that story. But we also talked about Jason Collins. For him to live a life that was not his own. And then to come out. And so we put that all together and that has aired on NBA TV this past week. And um, we're excited about where that may be able to go. Yeah. I, it's a great analogy about, about fake. Cause I mean, I think everybody, I shouldn't say everybody. I think a lot of people wonder if they're living an authentic life. Is this who I really am? And you kind of paper it over with money and fame and all those other things. And it doesn't make you any happier, you know, like, cause you're still fighting that. Um, but that's a, that's a wonderful uh, way to kind of get into that topic. And I, you know, Bob, we could talk for hours about your life. I mean, I think it's a wonderful, incredible thing, thing that you do. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show, man. This is, this has been terrific. I just. Well, David and Marcus, I got to tell you, if I just go through this one last thing, I want to tell you, David asked me a question many years ago when he interviewed me that comes up in my mind over and over. And at one point in, when my book came out, covert, my years infiltrating the mob, uh, David did a story on it. And, but at one point, he just stopped. We were in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. in a small little office. Yeah. <laughs> and you leaned back in a chair and you said, where's Bobby Covert today? Bobby Covert was my undercover name. Yeah, catchy name for an undercover guy, <laughs> but we weren't trying to be cute or funny. The death records and birth records are not cross-indexed in our country. So Robert Allen Covert was born in November of 1949. I was born in November of 51. Same first name, same ethnic-sounding last name. Yeah. And when... David said to me, where's Bobby Covert now? I, I, you know, it just, it, it caught me off guard. I almost got teared up because it was like, this is a guy that I became. And, and I said to David, it's like that cousin you grow up with and that you're real close with, but then you get older and you don't get to see anymore, but yeah. you still love him. Yeah. And what I always, I, I think of that question so many times because At some point in my life, I'm hoping to be able to meet Robert Allen Covert's real family to let them know, even in death, his life had such a significance and did so many good things. Because while that undercover job was about putting bad people away, 
I realize now that I had to go through that to be able to be in the position to be able to help a lot of good people. Yeah. That's, oh God, that's great. <laughs> so I thank you for that question. Sure. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm just fascinated by the whole notion of, you know, having to, having to like become a different person. Just, I mean, we all do it sort of, but not like but that. Not lean you know, in like, like that. Yeah. Not, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, not like that. Not with capable people, as you like to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. The capable, those capable guys. You got to watch out for capable guys. That's such a great word. Capable. Wow. Bob, out of curiosity, what made you go to, uh, what made you go to St. Mary's and did you, did you like actually go or was it online? Yeah, it was both. It was an online course. So um, my thirst for knowledge came late in life. I I only went to college to play basketball, uh, to be flat out honest. And then um, when I got my degree from New Jersey City University, um, I was always had this thirst for knowledge as I was going along. But then I found this program at St. Mary's College of California up in Moraga um, for for a, a master's in leadership. And um, so uh, I did go there. I would go uh, once a month for, for a weekend and we'd have courses and classrooms. And then during the week we'd be online and it was a three-year course. And it was extremely, extremely helpful in understanding about leadership. And then um, rec- most recently I, I finished a program with Harvard Global Mental Health Trauma and Recovery, uh, which is a certificate program. And we, we started the studies in Italy with 70 uh, in my cohort from around the world working in the area of trauma and refugees and f- folks doing work, great work in sex trafficking to mm. um, refugee camps to uh, military. So all those that are dealing with trauma. And I like to say that I went to Harvard uh, Global Mental Health over and over because I know my fifth grade teacher never had the word Harvard yeah. and my name <laughs> on her lips. <laughs> Hey, you know, uh, uh, DA, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, St. Mary's is like this picturesque school on the hill. And oh, the sure. No, I so know. I, yeah, yeah. If there's a, if there, I don't, I can't, I don't know too many more places, Bob, that would be great to think about life is, you know, you're on that hill, t- taking in that crisp air. <laughs> yep. That's where I started. I was wondering yep. if you got down there and chastised uh, Randy Bennett a few times in basketball, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've gone to games there, like on the weekends when I would be in there for Where's this? So I would zigzag around and the NBA was very helpful. So I would get Golden State games when I had to be out yeah. uh, for my program. And then I'd get to go to a, a college game there. Man, that was a heck of an atmosphere at St. Mary's, yeah. that little band box. And it was old school kind of basketball uh, uh, arena. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Great, great campus. Great campus. Bob, thank you again, man. I really appreciate your time. Best of luck to you. Please stay safe out there. As you used to tell me, stay safe. And now stay it takes safe. on a whole new meeting. <laughs> stay safe. Stay you safe. Know, like, so. For real, right? Um, yeah, for real. Thanks, man. David. Yes, Thanks, Thank you so Thank much. You really much for joining you. us. Honor to be with you. Man, Thank you. Man, this is one of, Mark was one of our best shows. I just love this. I just enjoyed the conversation so much. Um, so if you want to join in, uh, you know, you can always leave us comments and reviews. Five-star reviews are best on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, every place you get this fine American podcast. And Marcus, as always, if it's less than five stars, what are they supposed to do? And in the spirit of our, our guest, Bob Delaney, they should, I'm going to be a little bit more nice and peaceful. If, if you if you don't want to leave five stars, then maybe you should 
reconsider, uh, think about the the more appropriate uh, and, and better things about life, right? Yeah, and you know, <laughs> maybe do something for someone else instead, right? Maybe maybe go somewhere else and and be be positive somewhere else. Don't leave a four or three. Just don't leave anything and go be a light somewhere else because you clearly aren't aren't dedicated to helping us. So that's that's a very uh, that's an honor of Bob because normally I would call him a hater and say don't leave. But you know what? I'm, I'm so moved by our guest that I'm like, hey, you know what? That's fine. Don't leave us a five star. But yeah, but you can go be a light somewhere else. Go do that.